Today's scripture is from Matthew 15. From there, Jesus went to the regions of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from those territories came out and shouted, Show me mercy, son of David. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. But he didn't respond to her at all. His disciples came and urged him, Send her away. She keeps shouting after us. Jesus replied, I've been sent only to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He replied, It is not good to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off their master's table. Jesus replied, Woman, you have great faith. It will be just as you wish. And right then her daughter was healed. So I have a quick question for you. How, how does this text sit with you today? Jesus sounds cranky. How, how does that make you feel? How does that sit with you? Jesus just called that lady a dog. Like she should, what's wrong with dogs, right? <laughs> the dogs should get treats. <laughs> yeah, not just her, but like I came for the people of Israel. It's not good to throw food to you dogs, right? That's, that's what I'm hearing. Uh, yeah, so two weeks ago, we talked about a uh, wonderful, loving, happy Jesus who um, fed 5,000 families. And then last week, we talked about like Jesus walking on water and calming his disciples. But today, he feels very cranky or hangry. I don't know. Uh, what do we do? What are we doing with this text today? This, um, this is somehow the same Jesus who broke through cultural, racial, gender barriers with the woman at the Samaritan well, and all kinds of other situations. And yet, here we are with Jesus calling a Canaanite woman a dog. Just when you think you have this guy figured out, he throws you a curveball. Well, before we just go ahead and cancel the guy, um, maybe I can give you a little bit more context, and maybe that'll help a little bit. Or maybe it won't, and this is the last time you'll be in church. I hope that's not true, but... <sighs> Let's find out. <laughs> so two chapters earlier, if you remember your, uh, your Matthew, we learned that Jesus' cousin John the Baptist, his co-conspirator, his uh, front-runner... Uh, he was beheaded by Herod Antipas. It was a very big, dramatic, emotional deal, and Jesus sought to escape by himself, to mourn in private, as we do. But instead, he was followed by crowds of people who were also feeling all the feelings at the same time. And Jesus, instead of taking time for himself, had pity on them, fed them, taught them, healed them, gave of himself to them. He then said to his disciples, hey, you all go ahead. I'm going to take just one night to myself here. And then he took a couple hours by himself, and then he walked on the water out there to meet him. And that was last week's text. Thank you, Anne, for that beautiful reflection on uh, that con confounding text as well. So he lands on the other side of the lake and is instantly recognized by tons of people there. 
because this is his, his home, this is his spot. So within a couple of days, there was now a new enormous gigantic crowd following Jesus, demanding every moment from him, asking him for miracles, for teaching, for all the things that they had heard that he was good for. There were even some religious leaders from Jerusalem who took the trek up there just to challenge him and try to catch him and try to make his life harder. So the poor guy had not had any time to rest, to mourn, to question, to imagine what's next, to be with his family, maybe. Everywhere he goes, people find him. They know him. They see him. So he withdrew once again. But this time, he went to the Mediterranean coast, to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is outside of Israel itself. He's, he's out of the country at this point. He's in Phoenicia. Um, now, the Phoenicians, if, you, if your brain goes, oh, Phoenicia sounds familiar. That sounds like hooked on phonics. They invented the alphabet, the phonetic alphabet, thanks to the Phoenicians. They also invented the color purple. I mean, they didn't invent the color purple, but they invented the fabric, the purple fabric. They found a way of creating dye out of these awful snails. And um, they were the center of commerce. If you wanted to trade between Asia and Africa and Europe, you went through Phoenicia. So this is a small area, a small group of people who have massive amounts of control. It's a huge metropolitan area filled with, uh, with money, with influence, with people from all over the world. It's a great place to disappear in a crowd. And Jesus was probably also familiar with this area as well because he grew up not too far away. Um, about 30 or 40 miles away was Nazareth, where he was born. Um, and the people of Nazareth, where he was from, they were mostly farmers and craftsmen, fishermen, uh, blue-collar people living at or below the poverty line. Um, and they probably did a lot of their trading with the people from Tyre and Sidon, the, the, the Phoenician people, the rich merchants of there. I imagine Jesus took lots of day trips. Well, not day trips, but, you know, weekend trips with his parents to go sell some of the things they had, they had made and grown. There's also some evidence that relationships between the people of the Phoenicians and the people in Nazareth were not great. In times of famine, when you know, food was hard to come by, as is you can imagine would be the case. The wealthy, well-connected people, they got to eat first, right? And so they, in a number of occasions, came to Nazareth and bought up everything that existed. And in some cases took forcibly all that existed. So you can imagine there were probably a few times when the weather was rough and the crops were bad and Jesus was hungry as a kid. And he said, Mom, why don't we have any bread? And she said, well, the Phoenicians have to eat. So there's probably a kind of deep-seated resentment against the wealthy 1% who live over there in Phoenicia who have made our lives extra difficult, as if it weren't hard enough to be from Nazareth. These people, these rich, entitled people who want everything on a silver platter, they have made my life even harder. So here's Jesus with his disciples walking into a bustling city filled with all kinds of people that he can just blend into. A minute ago, he was this rock star in Israel, but now he is a religious minority. He is, uh, 
he is an unknown entity able to blend in with the crowds. And then, as if on cue, a frantic woman recognized him and starts crying out to him, begging him to come to her house because her daughter is possessed by a demon. And Jesus' first response is to ignore her because that works all the time, right? As a parent, I can tell you that. If somebody wants something from you, you just, you just pretend you don't hear them, and then they stop. It happens. It works every time. It doesn't work, does it, Charles? No, you just keep asking. <laughs> you keep asking until I say yes or no. So she insistently continues to beg Jesus to heal her daughter, and he tells her that he came first for the lost sheep of Israel, and that it's not right to take that those children's food and throw them to the dogs. And now you're waiting for the pastor to tell you that, well, in this context, that's not that offensive because blah, 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 blah. No, it is. It's even maybe more offensive because the Jewish people in those days didn't keep pet dogs because they were unclean. So in Israel, in Jesus' upbringing, a dog is just a scavenger around the trash heaps. Um, it's like uh, calling her a rat. It's, uh, it's not great. Why would Jesus say this, I wonder? Is it just to prove a point? Is he pretending to be a racist jerk so he can have a big gotcha moment in the middle, trap his disciples, catch them in their embedded racism, and then be like, aha, actually, you're the jerk, and I'm the great one. Is he just a jerk sometimes? Is he allowed to be? Um, is he hangry? Matthew doesn't explain, unfortunately, what Jesus is doing here. He doesn't give us a look into his mind and his motives. Um, Jesus doesn't come out and say afterwards, the reason I said this was because the Gospels never do that. <sighs> So we're left to speculate on what his motives were. But what happens next in this story is a remarkable interaction that is an absolute model for productive fighting and reconciliation. But before I get there, before we get to this sort of relational jiu-jitsu that these two people do to each other, I want to acknowledge the fact that the explanation for this passage that you will feel most comfortable with has a lot to do with how perfect you think Jesus was in his 33 years on earth. If you believe that Jesus never made a mistake, I don't mean a sin, but a mistake, that he never bent a, a, bent a nail while building a table or got an answer wrong on a Torah quiz in school, then he must be playing some kind of five-dimensional chess with her right now in this scenario because everything that he says and does has to be correct. If you believe that Jesus could be morally good and still make human mistakes, then you've got a little bit more wiggle room here about him having some unexamined racial bias. If you think Jesus was just a pretty good guy who had some pretty sweet teaching, then you're probably fine with any explanation that I could give you. Um, so wherever you are in that spectrum of sorts, just know that however whatever explanation makes you feel most comfortable probably has something to do with that. And I'll tip my own hand here and I'll tell you what I believe about Jesus. 
that I believe that Jesus could be morally blameless while also making plenty of very human mistakes along the way. Philippians 2 teaches us that Jesus had to uh, give up the trappings of divinity, that Jesus had to lessen himself, had to uh, put aside that which made him equal to the all-encompassing divine other in order to be made in a physical form among us. He took on flesh in our beautiful humanity with all the weaknesses to show us what it looks like when a human lives fully connected to the Spirit of God. And a part of living with a body means living with a brain. And a part of living with a brain means living with some very physical limitations. And the brain is inherently a little bit prejudiced. Because thinking takes energy. And actually, the thinking part of your brain, um, the non-thinking part of your brain, the part that's just automatic, is one million times more powerful than the thinking part of your brain. The thinking part is where your consciousness is, so you imagine that's everything, but that is one millionth of your brain's power. You are mostly on autopilot with a little driver at the top. <laughs> you are like the person strapped into a rocket flying into space. You have a little bit of control, but mostly you are just along for the ride. And so the brain makes a lot of shortcuts in order to make it through the day. It creates categories as you move through your life to help you quickly identify new information. So you, you've got categories like good, bad, edible, poisonous. This will make me itchy. Don't pet this thing. This is a family. This is a friend. This is dangerous. This is good. This is bad. This is friend. This is enemy. So on and so forth. Your brain instantly takes it and puts it in a category so that you can then move on with your life and you don't have to analyze every single thing that you encounter in your life. You wouldn't be able to function that way. So if Jesus grew up in a family that put Phoenicians in the awful entitled rich people box... That's not in and of itself a sin. Having unexamined prejudice is not a sin. The sin comes from what you choose to do with it when it no longer is unexamined. When it comes to light and it reaches that conscious part of your brain, what you choose to do with that determines whether or not it is a sin. And that is what I think is happening in this story today. People came to Jesus to learn, but this woman was in the special position of being a teacher to Jesus. She could have very, very easily taken offense to Jesus, and I imagine she did, and responded to him out of anger. She would have had every right to be. I mean, can you think of a time that a person insulted you to your face like that or insulted your loved ones to their face? Yeah. How did you respond? Um, did you yell? Did you scream? Did you throw a punch? Did you insult that person back? Andrew Jackson once shot and killed a man because he said his wife was ugly. <laughs> like, this is what we do as people, right? It's natural to want to stand up for yourself or the ones that you love. However, that's not what this woman does. This woman takes a deep breath. She swallows her pride like so many women are forced to do when interacting with men. 
And she calmly responds to Jesus, saying, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And now in that moment, her choice to respond with humility exposes Jesus's cruelty and then gives him a choice. He can choose to double down on his own self-righteousness and be exposed as a hypocrite, or he can take a moment to examine why he was denying her in the first place and then grow in love as a person. Now, how does Jesus respond to her? Because it's real tempting at this point for him and for any of us who are prideful people to double down. Like, I know I'm wrong, but I'm in it now, okay? So I'm just, I'm in it. I'm not going to admit I'm wrong at this point. I'm too far in. And so I'm just going to be stubborn, and I'm going to be more obnoxious to this person. Jesus could have very clearly just been like, uh, all right, lady, I got things to do. Get out of here, you, and then use whatever word that you use for Phoenicians in those days that's not recorded in the Bible. <sighs> have, you ever, have you ever been there? Have you ever been in the middle of an argument, know you're wrong, but can't stand to give in at that point? I think any parent here has been in that place. Even non-parents. But I'm just speaking from very recent experience. Watch yourself, child. But Jesus doesn't do that because he's Jesus, and of course he doesn't do that. No, Jesus has enough humility to listen to what this woman is saying, and then to go back on his original argument, which makes him look weak, you might say. But it takes more strength to admit you're wrong than it does to double down on your pride and arrogance. It takes tremendous strength to admit that you're wrong, but it is the only way that we grow. So to kind of wrap up this interaction, hidden in this perplexing passage is a sort of two-part social jiu-jitsu that I want you to dwell on this week. This Canaanite woman, she made a reasonable request to Jesus and was met with an insult instead. And some of you feel that in your gut. You've had that happen to you recently. And instead of responding to him with another insult back to him, she chose to respond with innocence and curiosity. Innocence and curiosity. It's the, the Ted Lasso response. Now, instead of escalating the moment, she broke the narrative, the expected response, and created an opening for creativity. This is the sort of thing that Jesus will teach his disciples to do later. I think he might have learned it from her. So she responds with innocence and curiosity, breaks the moment, creates an opening for creative restoration. And her innocence in the face of his arrogance exposes him and gives him the opportunity to either take the high road, which then gets her what she wants, or to double down and be exposed as a jerk, which, you know, is also kind of another win for her. So that's the first part of this social jiu-jitsu, responding to insult with innocent curiosity. It's a total power move. Then part two is Jesus's response in which he sees himself in that moment as a person he doesn't want to be. 
and takes the cue to humble himself instead of becoming more stubborn. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Both people do something that requires a ton of strength and wisdom, and both people come out better than they started. And I don't know which one of those two you resonate more with today, but I know you see yourself somewhere in this argument. And we don't really have the time today to share where you are in that situation. And I imagine most of you aren't very comfortable sharing that anyway. <laughs> but I pray that you would take some time this week to think about this interaction. Maybe read it a few more times at home. Pray for the wisdom. Pray for the strength to fight productively and forgive recklessly that we all might be better for it. Let us pray.